we're going to look today, what I'd like to do if we, if we are Zoycha, is get through the chapters 4 and 5, at Dalad and Hay of the Megillah. Um, we could spend longer, but I think, uh, I think well, let, let's see, let's see, let, you know, let's see, um, let's see what's possible, what's not possible. Either way, So what we've had so far is the decree's gone out, and we remember last time we saw the Malbim, uh, the decree's gone out, Haman's made this decree, he's going to kill all the Jews. It, well, the, it's, it, he's got the rings, he's got the signet, he's got the official capacity to run the world. And in fact, this is very important because in essence what the Megillah sets up is a controlled experiment in what happens if the world is handed completely over to pure evil, unimpeded. And so nobody can get in the way of Haman. Right? The king now doesn't have the constitutional ability to repeal a law that Haman's now got the signet ring to, to, sire, to sign into law. So the king can't intervene, right? The queen, as we're going to soon, soon see, is going to struggle to intervene. Mordechai can't get her to... Everyone's going to be in paralysis and one man is going to rule the entire world and that's Haman. And in fact, it goes even deeper because as we pointed out last time and is well known, right, that even though Hashem's name never appears in the Megillah, which means that at no point could you see the revelation of God directly. Yet, every time, just use the word Hamelech, the king, rather than calling him King Ahasuerus, that ambiguity allows for the hint that that's when you feel God massaging history, moving it. And it said last time, Hamelech of Ahaman even more that, the king removed the ring. Hashem himself, as it was, giving the reins of history to Haman. And, and so we saw also last time, so that's what's going on. This is going to be the reaction now. How, how do we deal with that? And now what's going to happen also we saw last time, sorry, is important context for this, this pasuk, this verse, is that the Malbim pointed out that it sounds like there were two letters, a letter that was public to everybody, to be ready for this great day, but also a letter that was not revealed, that was just sent to all the governors and concealed that has the official decree to kill everybody and later on the significance of that is going to become very important but that will help make sense in the Malbim's reading it's an unbelievable thing that till the Malbim nobody said it so this is 1800s but but it's so beautiful in the text that it explains what happens in the next verse next passage either way let's go and read this Mordechai knew everything that had been done so according to the Malbim he not everybody knew it. According to everybody else, everybody knew it, but maybe the decrees haven't yet gone. And as the question is, what does Mordechai know that everybody else doesn't know? According to the Malbim, he knows the secret. He knows the the back channels. Now, according to, if you don't learn like the Malbim, you could, you know, you, you, if you don't learn like the Malbim, you learn that there's big billboards everywhere saying, kill, murder, obliterate. Nothing's being kept beneath the surface. Everything is revealed. So what's Mordechai know? So first of all, he may know the inner deliberations of what occurred in the room. Right, he spoke to officials who were in the room. He, he knew what had gone on. And also, it could be the posters are still on their way out. They haven't gone out yet. Okay, we'll see. Either way, Mordechai knows something. Vayikra Mordechai's begadabi tears his clothing. Vayilbash sack for Efa, And he's wearing sackcloth and ashes. Vayyetze b'secha ira. And he's going out into the center of town. And what does he do? Vayizak z'okka g'doyla omara. He cries a cry that is great and bitter. And of course, that reminds us, and it's really, really important because we're always seeing flashbacks in the Megillah back to several episodes in the Torah. I've made this point a few times. Gan Eden, what happens in the Garden of Eden. Um, Esau and Yaakov who are, of course, the ancestors of the characters here, Agag, um, 
well, Amalek and Moshe, right? The battle between Yeshua, um, the battle between the Jewish people against Amalek, the struggle with Agag, the Amalekite and King Shaul, and then us now. So we've got these lines running all the way through. And this moment right now goes back to the moment that kept Esau in the game, right? Yaakov's got the brachas. We saw last time that Vayivas, Haman has this characteristic of Esau to despise anything that's important to the Jewish people. Right, he, just like it was, he despised the birthright. So Haman despised just killing Mordechai. He's got to destroy the whole Jewish people. Right? Because Esau despised the birthright, he, he lost it and also lost the brachas, he lost the blessings. And as he realizes, he comes into his father, who's given away the blessings to his brother Yaakov. Aesop cries out this tremendous cry. He's begging his father, please, could you give me? Still, he says, I've given, I've given away the blessings. I've given the brachas. I've made him the heir, right? I've made him the spiritual heir. And Aesop does this. In, in Pashas told us that Aesop cries out a tremendous cry. Right? That, um, sorry, just uh, going back to find it and told, and told us. Um, in, in, uh, Perek Chof Zayin, chapter 27, Pasuk 34, Lama Dalad. Kishmaya Esav is divrei Aviv. When Esav heard his father's words, Vayitzak Tz'aka Gadoila, he cries a cry that is great, umaram bitter, ad ma'oid exceedingly. And he says, please, some bracha. And then after all of that, Yitzhak says, you know what? Okay, he says, I've made him, I've given him this kind of role in history. Um, but... He says, he says, you can you can get the short term. His bracha is really the long term of history. You can get the short term. You can have the fats of the earth. And the Jews of the heaven above. You live by your sword. You really should be in service of your brother, helping him. If he fails, if the Jewish people fail, then forget you helping him. Now you're in charge and you can dominate him. And of course, that cry of Esau that kept that alive, that every time the Jewish people are failing, Esau can come and by his sword start slaughtering us, is exactly the cry that Mordechai now, is, that's exactly what's being manifest in the story. And Mordechai senses it. And so he's got to give a counter cry as deep, as bitter, as pain driven and as existentially um, in survival as Esau did back then. And he, instead of Tz'aka G'dayla Amara Ad Ma'oid, he gives a Za'aka G'dayla Amara, the cry that is great and bitter. So that's immediately re-alerting us to the fact that when we see the dominance of anti-Semitism, we've got to think to ourselves, have we slipped, have we, have we let go? And this cry, therefore, becomes a cry for, more than a cry for help, a cry for an awakening. Now let's see what happens. He came up till before the gate of the king. You can't walk in there with sackcloth. And there's so many layers of meaning over here, right? The simple one is he's wearing sackcloth. He, he normally works in the gate of the palace. He can't go there because he's, he's dressed inappropriately. Okay, but of course, the real, perhaps the depth is in that state of mourning, he can't get to the king. The ultimate levels the one needs to be at. And okay, so that's that's like on the deeper hint that we're talking about the relationship with Hashem. But we can get up to just before the gate. One way or another. And this now what we've got to understand. Every place where the laws of the king got to. Mourning, great mourning for the Jews. With soim and fasting, over chi and crying, or misspade and eulogies. Sakva efa yutzarabim. Sackcloth and ashes are being distributed everywhere. 
understand this is an amazing, amazing passage. You know, there's a halacha that you're not allowed, the Gemara says you can't read the Megillah out of order. And the point is that, yes, we know the end of the story, but we got to picture ourselves in the middle of the story. Right now, whether it's as the, as the normal way of learning, if you like, that all the, up in every village is a billboard saying we're going to kill, slaughter, obliterate every single Jew, young to old, on one day, and they're running to the next village. Can we go to you? No, we got the same billboard. Across the whole known world is the same billboard. Or even according to the Malbim that the billboard just said everyone should be ready. But everybody knew if the Nazis are running the state and they're telling everyone suddenly be ready for this day. Everyone understood. One way or another now, it's over. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. You can't go anywhere. The whole known world that anyone could get to is in the Persian Empire. Okay, there was Greece, but the border between Persia and Greece, apart from crossing a river, was war. You couldn't get, so the Jews can't go anywhere. And they start reaching out to the Nevi'im, to the prophets. There's no prophecy. There's going to be no miracle. Nothing. And so desperate are the Jewish people. This, listen to what's going on over here. I mean, imagine just being a Jew and walking in the streets and everyone's just going like this to you, right? You know, like, we're going to kill you all. Imagine trying to sell your property or your car equivalent in those days, right? And everyone just laughs. What do you mean? We've been told on these, we know that we're going to kill you all and take all your property. It, it, it's a, so tragic, is it? And so desperate that they are mourning. They're already mourning even though no one's died yet. And they're doing misbehaved. They're actually eulogizing. Like today they're eulogizing this one. Tomorrow they're going to they're like all sit around and say, look, it's all over. Let's, let's give her spade. It's an unbelievable place to be. And, and we've got to feel that pain because any pain and tragedy and, and reaction like this that we will ever experience, the Megillah wants us to tap into it and then watch the journey out. Okay. But sorry, Sarah, and so now the servants of Esther, right, are maid servants and other servants, they told her everything that's going on about Mordechai, which, by the way, for the first time teaches us that two things. One is we now have people working with her which we hadn't realized before, but most importantly is that they understand how important Mordechai is to her. Right? Okay, she's incredibly distressed. Um, the Gemara discusses different meanings of that word. And she, she wants to get Mordechai clothing and get rid of the sackcloth, presumably so she can talk to him. He, he can't get into the palace like this, right? He refuses. Now we have a man called Hasach, and the Gemara hints that says that he may be Daniel, right? Okay, and discusses why, which is it would be even more amazing that Daniel from previous stories in Tanakh, um, chronologically, is still somehow a very old figure who's around, maybe, according to that view in, in the Gemara, which is uh, Rav and Shmuel. It's a serious, you know, first generation Amaraim here tradition that Daniel is somehow there, and although he may have been lowered from his original status, she's now got a, somebody Jewish on the inside, so there's a network, if you like, over here. But one way or the other, she sends her trusted servant, Hasach, who've been placed before, for the first time, she's initiating something in the Megillah. Note that. And it's going to become stronger and stronger. She commands him about Mordechai, to know what this is and what this is about. Now, the, the, the Medrash brings that Mazer can also be read as to hint at the... Um, just like the luchas, just like the tablets, the original Ten Commandments are written on both sides of the stone, right, from one end to the other. So what, why would that hint appear right here now in the text? Because, because the luchas, the tablets, are about, on the one hand, the relationship between God, but also about man. In fact, that's in essence what they are. 
the relationship between God and man. God identifies himself as who took you out of Egypt. Right? That's our relationship. And remember that just before that could happen, Amalek strikes. Amalek wants to say, no, the man-God relationship isn't there. But Mizelmazem is it runs through from one end to the other. It goes from heaven all the way down to earth. So what's happening here is that Haman has sensed an obstacle between heaven and earth, a blockage point between God up in heaven and man as a failure on earth. And that is being, Esther wants to understand what's happening here. Where's God? Where's man? What, what, what's the story over here? And that's the hint at the selection of those words. So she wants to understand what is Mazah al Mazah? And of course, what Chazal are pointing out is the phrase Mazah v'al Mazah. What is this and on what is this? <laughs> so even on the simple meaning, what is this means, what are you doing? All right? Are you crazy? V'al Mazah and what is this really about? Not what's going on on the surface, but what's the deeper layer? And that's, of course, exactly the point. The surface layer is as an anti-Semite who wants to get us. The deeper layer is we've disconnected from God. Okay, so let's... Um, let's go further. I mean, every single, every passage, every verse is just so laden with meaning. But Hasach went out to Mordechai to the Rochov nowadays in modern Hebrew means street, but in those days it meant the city square. That was before the gate of the king. And Mordechai told him everything that had happened to him. Now, of course, that word kara is exactly Amalekism. Who happen upon you along the way? Of course, Amalek attacks the most premeditated thing Amalek does in striking the Bnei Sal, the Jewish people in the desert. It's called Karcha. They happened upon you. Because for Amalek, Mikra, coincidence, meaninglessness is ideological. They believe the entire world is meaningless. They believe nothing is valuable in this world. And so Mordechai uses that phrase, Karahu. Right, hinting that this is we really appear to be under the ideology now, and Hashem himself seems to be running the world this way, as if it's all mikra, as if it's all meaningless, non-interventional, no miracles for Ace Parashas, I guess, as he told him all this, and about the finances of all the financial arrangements that Haman has made to the um, treasury of the king, so that he can kill the Jews, and now the copies of the law, that were given out to destroy the people, the Jews, he gave to him, now, according to the Malbim, this is amazing, because, because the Malbim says these laws were not revealed to the public. So Mordechai has got hold of a copy. According to others, perhaps Esther wasn't yet aware inside the palace. One way or the other, he's giving her copies of this law to tell her, and to instruct her to come before the king, and to seek for her people. Now again, there's a hint here uh, back to the story of Esau and Yaakov, um, because... The begging, it turns out, um, just give me one sec, the begging is actually an echo of a reaction that Esau himself had, or not Esau, the angel of Esau, um, because, and we're going to see this play out more and more in the Megillah, in Hosea, the prophet Hosea, when he recounts the story of the struggle between the angel of Esau and Yaakov, right, he uses the phrase, um, he says, Yaakov overcame the angel in the struggle, the angel cried and begged. That phrase will appear later on. Esther will eventually go into the king and cry and beg. Right? And see, and that will be kind of, again, the antidote, undoing anything that kept Esau in the game. But right now, it's not going to happen. 
right now. More, now, if you didn't know anything about the text and you just heard this line, Mordechai has commanded her to go and beg for the people, then you would say, what would you say? You'd say, well, of course she's going to do it because it's Mama uh, Mordechai Esther Oysa, right? Esther just does everything Mordechai says. She's appeared so far in the story to be ultra passive, right? Very non-assertive. And she does everything Mordechai says. So that's it. She's going to do it. She's going to go in. She's going to beg for the people. And seek um, for the for her people. And says, and we expect Esther to carry it out. And here comes the shock. Esther says to Asach, and now she gives the commandment to Mordechai. And here comes the stinging rebuke. This is the craziest idea I've ever heard. Every servant of the king. You don't even need to be a servant of a king. Every little peasant, every school kid, everybody knows. There's a constitution here. There's a law. Nobody, not including the queen, no, including the queen, nobody can walk up to the king. You cross the line in the inner courtyard. Without, who hasn't been called. There's only one law, death. That's what the guards do over there. That's what their job is. You walk in without papers, without having been summoned. Bing! You don't even cross the threshold. Unless the king raises the scepter to give them life. Forget it. 30 days he hasn't even called me. And so stinging is this rebuke. It's so shocking in context of who we thought Esther is till now, until we realize that, as the Gemara has told us, it's Sneers. And Sneers, as we saw with the ancestors of Esther, Rachel and Shaul, never means just to be meek. It means to hold things in reserve and to know when they need to be projected. And here it's being projected. And so sharp is the rebuke that the next passage says, It doesn't say Hasach went. It was told to Mordechai the words of Esther. The Gemara says he, like, he was so ashamed, he didn't even go himself to deliver it. He had to send somebody else. And, like, eventually the message got there. <laughs> but this is it. And watch Mordechai's reaction. We think he says he gives her a speech and she says, okay, fine, I agree. It's not what he does. He basically says, I'm sorry. I got it wrong. I don't know. Forget the plan. And amazingly enough, that Vayishan in the actual begging for her people, even though she'll later on tell, um, tell Ahasuerus, she'll say, you know, Haman wants to kill us. All that does is get Haman killed. The actual crying and begging for the people doesn't happen until much, much later on in the Megillah, like eighth chapter. So plan A is shelved. And what Mordechai now says is, he says to bring back the message to Esther again, not Hasach, because Hasach's not telling him. Okay, don't you think you're just going to survive in the palace? Because if you stay silent now, now this is a great moment to pause and do a thought experiment. Imagine you or I were about to give over this uh, speech to Esther. Esther, you've got to go in and, and, and save the Jews. Because if you just stay silent now, Right, we would finish it by saying something like, we're all going to be killed. Right? It's desperate times. You've got to do something. Look at what he says. We'll be saved anyway. <laughs> so it's got to be the most unpersuasive speech in history. Esther, it's desperate moments. If you don't go in, we're all going to be saved. Oh, so you go and get saved and I'll do Tehillim. And like, uh, you know, well, good. It's probably what he's sending me in for to get killed. You know? But then he says, a seemingly non sequitur, you and your ancestral home will be obliterated. One sec, you just told me we're all going to be saved. Why would... Who knows if this isn't why you became queen? It's like, we go in this direction, this direction. What do you mean? Maybe this... 
Maybe it's why I became queen. Maybe it's not why I became queen. So please, you've got to go in because if you don't go in, we're all okay. But you'll be killed. How would I be killed? And maybe this is why you became queen and maybe not. Like, what's going on? And there's a very, very deep point. I've told you some of the beautiful ideas I have in the Megillah came from hearing Shurim by uh, Rabbi Weinberg in the Old City of Yerushalayim. And he, he said something really profound. And you could see concepts like this throughout Chazal. It works. And really, the Ramchal, actually, in the Das Tavunas, you could argue in a certain way, almost half the safer, really, is this principle. Suppose we didn't believe we're going to be saved anyway. In other words, suppose we believe that history depends on whether we are saved or not depends on you, Esther. That means there's an actual possible outcome in which we're not saved. Meaning it is possible for history to fail. The Jewish people are destroyed, God's plan fails, and maybe God zaps in with a huge miracle, puts in a new world at the end, and everybody can walk into it, and fantastic. Our story failed, God has a world to come for us all, maybe in soul world, or in the end of his resurrection of the dead, and new world, get your reward and punishment. Then I would say don't take the risk. In other words, it is actually possible to fail, so don't take the risk, because evaluate your life, maybe we should wait a few months, maybe we should wait for the miracle, right? And the probability of success is so low, but that's not what history is. The whole point is that what the depth of the Torah's worldview is that all of history is going to produce a revelation of oneness of God. In other words, what will be revealed is everything was part of the plan. And what that means is history is like a narrative or a story being co-authored. We are choosing its pathways all the time. But God is engineering it in what the Ramchal describes as Hanhagas HaYichud, a deep, deep underlying drive, moving everything to the point of revelation. And in that fight, God's going to engineer that final chapter with a great twist that will reinterpret the whole rest of history. And when that great twist happens and we look back, we will suddenly see how acts that we did, even things we thought, whether we thought they succeeded or failed in the short vision that we can see of the world, rippled across history in a cause and effect way and landed and produced that final chapter. So Esther, you might walk across the threshold and get killed. I don't know. I, I don't know what, right? I can't tell you. Maybe, maybe my plan was stupid. But I know this, whatever happens, your choice will be in that final chapter. If you choose to do good, no matter how small or great you think that good is, it will be in the final chapter. If a person chooses evil, they will have to be destroyed for the final chapter to happen. And if a person chooses to walk away from a key moment, then they are written out of the story forever. Esther, because whatever happens, the story is going to work out. That's exactly where you have to get involved. That's what history demands of you. And do you not notice? What is you and your ancestral home will be obliterated? Ancestral home? Bing! That's your great-great-grandfather. My great-great-grandfather is Mordechai Shaul Amalek, King Shaul, who messed up, who allowed Agag to live, which allows Haman to come and kill us all. You don't realize, you can't feel the sensitivity of history that his great-great-grandson is trying to kill us all. You're the great-great-granddaughter. You're in the palace. You've got to do something. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it... I, I, I've, you're right. My plan was terrible. Forget my plan. But you've got to do something because history demands of you to do something. I don't know. I don't know if this is exactly why you became queen or not. I can't tell you where we are in history. What I can tell you is you've got to find a way to do something. And she gets that. And it's, by the way, remarkable. The more convinced you are that, that Hashem's running everything, the more you don't know exactly where you are in the story. We can only visualize things at our level. Hashem's plan is far deeper. But we know what we've got to do is not control the outcome of success or failure, but put the right input in. Esther turns around and goes, okay, so I don't know the input either, 
but I know what we need to do right now before that input. I know the input before the input. I know what I've got to do right now. And let's do this then. If, if you're right, beautiful. This is like really the whole, the whole Ashkofa, the whole view of what the Megillah is, is that every moment matters. Every person matters. We're all part of this meta-narrative. To Haman, everything is meaningless, even the most seemingly meaningful thing. To us, everything is meaningful, even things that might completely seem like they're fading. Um, so, so gather all the Jews together. All the, all the Jews of Shushan, fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days. I and all my maidservants will do the same thing. And of course, the hint here, the word that we use again and again, and like this, is exactly what we say on Rosh Hashanah. This is how we come to God, right? Desperate. We don't know, right? But just wanting to do whatever it is you want from us, Hashem. I'll come to the king. Double meaning. Simple meaning, I'll come like this to Achashverosh. Deeper meaning, I'm going all the way to God. Right? But the, let's go with the simple meaning. Not like the law. He said again, double meaning. Against the law and therefore risking my entire life. And on a deeper level, breaking Pesach. This was 13th of Nisan. You fast 13th, 14th, 15th, you're fasting on, on Seder night. Right? That's how desperate the Jewish people were. Because Satanite commemorates miracle. There's no miracle. It's so desperate that we got to fast and beg and do tshuva and everything, even across what would normally have been a yomtev. And as I am destroyed, so I will be destroyed. What I lose, I will lose. I lose everything. Simple meaning. He'll either kill me at the gate, or I'm going to end up now with the rest of my life with this monster. Because halachically also, remember, according to one opinion, um, she's actually married to Mordechai. And up till now, she's been passive. So halachically, the intervention of the relationship with Achashverosh doesn't actually constitute adultery and she's permitted still to Mordechai. But from now, she's volunteering to walk in there and the hint is very clear and therefore she might be lost for Mordechai forever. Now, it's not clear anything really did happen and therefore she not didn't, well, she did or didn't, we'll get to later on. But the tragedy of those words, I am going to be destroyed, obliterated. And by the way, even if she succeeds, she might be stuck in the palace forever. Right? This, this could be the end of her as a, her personal story. And she's willing to give everything up to do what history demands of her at that moment to save, try to save Klalisol, even though she's pretty sure the plan will fail. She doesn't even have a plan as we're about to see. And now let's enter. Now the opposite. Until now, Esther's been doing everything Mordechai commanded. Now Mordechai does everything that Esther commands. And so the word Esther, that which is hidden, has now begun to emerge at the surface. And now Esther is running. This hiddenness that looked like it was not doing anything till now has now awakened and it's now driving the story. And we'll see more and more of these sorts of things happening through the Megillah, because ultimately the hidden hand of God is going to arrive and arise and drive the story. Chapter 5, fifth chapter. It was on the third day, it doesn't say Esther wore royal clothing. She wore royalty. Because there's a spiritual power of royalty, if you like, but also she is royalty. She's for real. Right? She is a great-great-granddaughter of, of Shalom. She's the one who's been reinserted into the kingship. She stands there opposite the king's house. He's sitting on the throne of his kingship. In the house of his kingship, opposite the entrance. Again, there's so much to say about each word that we can't pick up on everything. But 
And it was when the king saw Estamaka, remember every state of mind is prefixed ka, it's like he saw Estamaka. He's, some, he, he's seeing, but he's not seeing, right? It's, is he seeing her as the queen? He's not sure, right? There's a certain uncertainty built in, in over here, right? So he wants to, it's, it's like he can see Esther the queen, right? Not just the regular Esther who she's been till now. He sees royalty or does he, or does he really see the greatness of her, or doesn't he, right? It's like he appreciates who she is. Medes standing in the courtyard, and then, so he's now, it's almost like, I can see she looks like Esther the Queen. No, but I'm just going to pretend she looks like Esther the Queen. Remember, he's threatened by her. He doesn't want to see Esther the Queen. That's why it's Kiros, it's like he sees Esther the Queen. Oh, I see my Queen, of course, right? But in his mind, he's like, I don't want to see her. She's a threat to me, I don't know who she is. But then all of a sudden something else happens. Nosachain, a certain charm happens. And the Gemara says like it's Malachim. Now the Rambam always tells us that Malach doesn't appear as a physical being. These are not like angels in a Michelangelo painting, but a messenger. Something hits his brain that he doesn't know where it came from. And he's suddenly he's like, oh my goodness, there's something special about this woman. And that's something special about her. Something special, she's royal. There's something really real over here. Something he wasn't conscious of drives him to react differently. Um, and so what, does, what happens in that moment? And that's, of course, been the fasting of three days of the people. Listen, that's God's now intervening, but again, very subtly. And the king raises Esther for Esther, the golden scepter. Right? It's not even for Esther the queen. It's Esther the person. Right? Forget this royal stuff. I just want you, Esther, as you. Asher be in his hands. Vatikra of Esther. Esther walks forward. Right? And she touches the top of the scepter. And the king says, What's with you, Esther the queen? What is your agenda? Up till half the kingship I'll give to you, right? I'm so desperate. I've been desperate this whole time to know what you're about, who you really are, all the stuff that we spoke about in earlier chapters. And of course, the Gemara says, half the kingship, but not the thing that will split the kingship, which is the Beis Hamikdash. Again, the subconscious fears and phobias that Achashverosh has that he's an imposter. And he's possibly sensed something in her that is connected to that real other half, the, a, a, a royalty that's greater than his, ultimately part of the people for whom the Beis HaMikdash was built, where God's presence really, where real royalty comes into the world. So he's in a complicated state of mind. He didn't want to see her as the queen. He didn't even know if he wants her at the gate. And then all of a sudden he finds there's something about her he can't explain that is drawing him back to her. And this kind of sense of, on the one hand, I want to give you everything, but I'm also threatened by you. It's all going on over here. And what does she say? Um, so we're talking about Esther, unbelievable. She says, It's good for the king. Could the king please come with Haman to the, to the meal I'm making, this drinking, drinking meal? Um, now, uh, one second, sorry, just wait, wait for me to get through that. Apologies to all those on the Zoom call. Um, Okay, now the Gemara asks something really unbelievable over here. It's a Gemara in Daft Tesvav of Megillah. Um, and the Gemara says, Esther, what was Esther thinking? Right? What, what, it literally, Conor Abon, it's a Bryce, it's a source in the, it says, what did Esther, what, what was this idea of bringing Homon? Talk to Achashverosh about the fact that Homon wants to kill you. What is she thinking to bring him to the party? And the Gemara gives a whole bunch of answers, right? First of all, um, Revelaza says it was it was like a trap, right? She she thought maybe she'll be able to trap him, maybe that she'll steer the conversation, to, he'll say something that will incriminate himself. Rabbi Yoshua said, remember, Rabbi Yoshua, Rabbi Yoshua, talking, we're talking just timeline to understand this is this is around the time of the Khurban, just after the Khurban, after the destruction of the base of Mikdash. 
So we're talking, you know, quite early on in, in before the mission is written down. And Rabbi Yeshua says, well, if your enemy's hungry, give them bread to eat, right? The pr different principles of, of uh, you know, win him over, wine him and dine him. Rabbi Meir says that he, he won't... Um, he, she wants him right in the room so that he can't be rebelling against Achashverosh on the outside. Rav Yehuda says that, uh, that there were probably rumors around that she's Jewish. She didn't want anyone to think she's Jewish. Um, and so you go on in the Gemara. Rav Yossi says that, uh, that he should be... Uh, uh, right, sorry. The, yeah, so the Jews... Sir Nehemiah says it's not that she didn't want them to think she's Jewish. She didn't want the Jews to feel secure and feel, oh, we've got a queen in the house, right? And then they wouldn't daven. She wanted them to keep going davening and keep being scared. So she was doing it to arouse fear in the people. You see, these, some of these are just contradictions and opposite each other, and, and uh, which will become important at the moment. Rav Yossi says it's so that he should be there at any moment. At just that moment, the king gets angry, right? Uh, Haman should be able to be killed or something. Rav Shimba Manasseh says, uh, maybe, I don't know, like... the sitting there with monsters and Nazis in the room, maybe Hashem himself will just have mercy and come and do a miracle. And uh, Rav Yeshua ben Karcha says that, uh, that it, she was willing to commit suicide. She, she wanted to play on Ahasuerus' paranoia. She knows he's scared of her. She knows she's scared of, he's, he's jealous and scared of Haman. Put them in the room together. In a fit of anger, Ahasuerus will kill them both. She's willing to die. She's willing to lose everything but to save the Jewish people, right? By, by putting the two of them together, he'll arouse a real anger and jealousy. Rabban Gamliel says, look, he, he's, he's a king who can constantly flip his mind. If I say, if I win him over, then I'll go to Haman, Haman will win him back. So I want him in the room so I can control the whole thing right now. You know that, uh, that uh, Revelar Zamadoy says that jealousy, right? Rabbo says, says before pride comes a fall, let's build him up to great ego. Abaya and Rava, one says that, um, one says that, uh, she wanted to fulfill the, the verse that uh, that making them drunk and, and, and kind of asleep lull them into false sense of security. Say, uh, what are the, all these different things? There are so many different interpretations, in, pulling in all different directions. And then the Gemara says something amazing, right? Rabbi Baravu says, uh, came to Eliyahu Anavi. And he says, he says to Eliyahu, which one is it? An amazing line, right? So Rabbi Avua says to Eliyahu, who is it? He says, Kaman What was the truth? Right? All these amazing opinions for hundreds of years through the writing of the Mishnah into deep into the Yeshiva of Pumbadisa just before the finishing of the Gemara. Hundreds of years people are debating this issue. What's the answer? And Eliyahu says, like all the Tanaim and all the Amorim, all hundreds of years, all those 10 different opinions, all of them. But it can't be all of them. One of them, she's going to get committed suicide. The others, Jewish people, right? Davin and this. The others, they don't, they don't all make sense together. Unless what we understand is all of them means she sees it could go this way. It could be, this might work as pride before the fall. It might work as, as, as stopping Ahasuerus doing this. It might, it might, she's got lots of options in front of her. She doesn't know how the chemicals are going to react. She, she just got to put them all together and it's really any of them. I don't know. Any of these could be my reasons and many, many possible more. I just know that I'm putting chemicals together here and Hashem's going to have to do this. I don't have a plan. She doesn't have a plan. Who knows if this is why he became queen? Mordechai doesn't have a plan either. He tried to plan. She told him it's a stupid plan, right? Just to walk in the king and say, hey, let's save us. She's now trying an alternative plan, but she doesn't really know the plan. She just knows that... that if you're right, I've got to be sensitive to history and trying to do the right. Let me put the ingredients together and let Hashem cook his stew and let, let's, let, let's, let's have this, right? And now comes 
Okay, so here they are. So what does the king say? Yeah, he should, let's do this. The next thing we know, they're all sitting there together. So now they're drinking and everything. And he turns to us and says, What is your request? We'll do it. And what's your, your, look, I've even got Haman here, right? You wanted him here as well. You know, you want to ask, I don't know, for some of the treasury, for some of the, the prime minister to pass things to law. Yeah. What's your agenda? I think it's the Vilna Gaon who points out, Sheila is personal. And Bakasha is your agenda. Whatever it is, at the, your, your Sheila, whatever's personal for you, will definitely do completely. Your agenda up to half the kingship. Half the empire, Vateas, will be done. This is an amazing thing. Of course, she's put the chemicals together and nothing's happened. So she's like, Hashem, you know, Hashem, come on, come on. Oh, come on, please. <laughs> you know, and she's talking about, she says, Shailasi, my personal request. This is like a real filibuster. She's stalling now. Uva koshosi. And my agenda is, you can imagine, yeah. If I found favor in the eyes of the king, as she repeats again, and as if him and Amalek even if it's good for the king, Lossay says Shailasi to do my personal request. Say yes, Hashem, what's happening? I'm, I'm giving you more time. Nothing's happening. And to do my agenda, yes, we've heard those words before. Now what? Yavo Amalek v'Haman el Mishdasher selahem. Let's do this again. Tomorrow, tomorrow, I'll really, really, I'll tell you then. <laughs> you know, it's like the plan failed. Nothing happened. Now, Haman's going out completely glad. Oh, he's on top of the world. Remember, if you don't believe Hashem's running the world, then the world is whatever gender you have for it, right? So, as long as you can control it, that's fine, and you always believe you can control it. Mordechai and Esther don't believe they can control the world because Hashem's running it. But Haman's convinced. So he's got it. He's always got it all figured out. Whatever his psychological state is, tells him this is what's going. If he feels good, the world's going well. If he feels bad, the world's going badly. So now, now when he sees Mordechai, not getting up and bowing, there's just rage. And now, on the one hand, in the moment, he's on top of the world. But now he's got this counterweight of rage, right? So Vaisapa Khaman Vayovel Beso Sahaman restrains himself. He had to really work hard not to kill Mordechai. He comes to his house, Vayishnach Vayove Sahavov Vazarish Ishta. He brings his lovers and Zarish's wife. I always think that's very funny, like <laughs> she wasn't one of the lovers apparently. Anyway. Um Vaisapalem Haman. Haman tells them, and this is now the ultimate like narcissistic personality disorder. He tells everyone, gathered around me my wife and children and lovers and everybody and fans. Eskavoy Dasha, do you know how wealthy I am? Yes, we know. We're sitting inside one of your great houses. Veroiv Bonav, do you know how many children I have? <laughs> yes, we're your children, you know. Do you know the king promoted me? Yes, you haven't stopped talking about the promotion. Then he raised me above all the other officers. Yes, he says, we know, we know. We can see all the... What have you talked about for the last however many months? Do you know that the, the queen invited nobody to the party but me? Yes, yes, you've talked about nothing else for the last 20, 12 hours. Oh, wow, tomorrow I'm also going to be called. Wow, you're amazing, Haman. Yeah, they all break out of applause in Melech with the king. This is worth zero to me. Because when I've got little agendas in the world, then everything is about what's what's worth things to me. 
you know how deep this is just by the way because it shows you a big lesson anti-semitism is to do with the mental state of the person it's like when a person looks at the jewish people what they see is their own mental state actually and a mental state filled with rage a mental state of ultimate narcissism and this is the point if one drops god out of the picture then one becomes the god at the center of the picture and all of the feelings and all the emotions and all this becomes to the person their measure of reality and the greatest threat to them is a people who live in the world saying actually God is the center of reality and we manifest ourselves completely in that line. Now a person can consciously believe in God but ultimately want to be the center of reality. There's so many layers to the subconscious hatred but that's Haman's bringing them out. If one person doesn't respect me then I'm not the God King of the universe. If one person tells me there's a divine force and our job is to be subjected to it right then that makes me feel deeply worried and insecure. And more than worried and insecure, I can't live, says, says Haman. Right? This Mordechai HaYehudi, this Jew, sitting at the gate of the Melech. So Zeresh and all the lovers say, Yasa gates, make a 50 amma high tree. Tell the king, don't even ask the king, right? Because you're now in charge. Just tell him and hang Mordechai on it. And then you'll come back in a good mood. And when you're in a good mood, you'll, that's it. And he made the tree. He loved it. And I know we've only got a minute or two left, but let me just point out a tiny drop because I've said again and again that Megillah's hinting back to the Garden of Eden. The opening scene was in the courtyard of the Garden of the King, right? We spoke about the fact that Haman's very name, Hamin Ha'etz, Haman, where is he in the Torah? Is it from the tree I told you not to eat? You ate? Haman is that which came out of the tree of confusion, of knowledge of good and bad. And now the question is who's going to be hung back on that same tree? Right, the exact inverse story of the garden, and so all the hints, and of course it was in the Garden of Eden that God's voice became distant, and man started to think of himself as the center of the world. You'll be like God, You'll feel if something feels good to you or bad to you. You'll see the eyes, says the snake. Through you'll see the world through your little eyes. Your eyes will be opened. That's what he says. Right, your eyes will be opened. You'll be God. You'll feel the world through good and bad. And as the Rambam tells in the second chapter, the Moiranevuchim, the entry of pure subjective self-centeredness is then. And against that is, and, it, and that's the struggle that's that's occurring over here. So we've literally hit this power moment where where you know evil's now complete domination. Good doesn't seem to have the plan. Evil's got it all, and evil's plan is now to really, really, really drive all the way back into the depth of the sin of the Garden of Eden. And that's where we're going to have to finish this week. Okay, if there's any questions, uh, I'll take, I'll, I'll stay on for a few minutes just to take uh, any questions.